I was telling some folks when Pastor uh, emailed me the flyer for the youth rally uh, several weeks ago, I uh, thought, oh yeah, I pray for that and look forward to that. And, and uh, so I checked the weather in Custer, South Dakota, and it was below zero. <laughs> I thought, oh my, I got to get ready for that week. And uh, I texted him back. I said, boy, I hope the weather's better by the time I get there. And, and uh, he responded with, we're praying that way. And you obviously were because yesterday was a beautiful day. And we're thankful for the safety God gave all the young people as they came. And uh, appreciate your prayers for the, for the uh, time with them. And I believe God answered those prayers. So thank you. And it's great to be back uh, here at Mountain View and look forward to this week. Hope that you can be as, and, at as many services as possible and uh, look forward to what God's going to do. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Matthew and chapter 5. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Matthew contain what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this, of course, was the Lord's message on the Mount of Olives and uh Throughout this passage, of course, there is a lot of teaching, a lot of instruction that the Lord gives. And I want to focus right here toward the beginning of this message. In uh, the first part, we have the Beatitudes, and we're familiar, I think, with those. And then look what he says in verse number 13, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, Wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, in this bit of introduction here, in this message, the Lord likens us as believers to a couple of metaphors or illustrations, we might say. He calls us light, and he calls us salt. Now, when the Lord refers to his people as light, that's fairly easy, I think, for us to make a connection, because if the Lord came to this earth to be the light of the world. Um, It's interesting, way back in the book of Genesis, we read about the creation. And when God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth. So in that initial stage of creation, the world was dark. And so the first thing that God then did was, he said, let there be light. And immediately there was light. Well, the world today is dark in the sense of truth. Today, man flounders in darkness. He's not sure where to go, what to do. He doesn't have answers to problems that he faces. And in a sense, he's like someone groping in the dark, unsure of his next step, unsure of what may be out there. And so Jesus came to this earth to be the light of the world. In John chapter 1, it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, talking about Jesus Christ. 
And John tells us later in that chapter that, that he was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John said, I'm not that light, but I came to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So Jesus is the light of the world. Now we, as his people who are left here now, are to be a reflection of that light. Just as in Genesis, God made two great lights. The greater lights rule the day, the lesser lights rule the night. He made the stars also. So we know that the sun, which is brilliantly shining here today, is the source of light physically upon the earth. Tonight, if it's not cloudy, we'll go out and we'll see the moon. The moon has no light source in itself. It is merely reflecting the light of the sun. Well, likewise, you and I that are saved are to reflect the light of the sun. Just as John the Baptist said, I'm not that light. I came to bear witness of that light. I came to be a reflection of that light. So you and I have the privilege, we have the opportunity every day in our life to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ to this world. What a wonderful opportunity that is to give light to those that are in darkness. So that correlation, that association with light is pretty simple to understand. But in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, why would the Lord call us salt? Well, typically, when we think about salt, we first think about something on the kitchen table. We think about a substance that we use to season our food. Uh, I have managed to eat a lot of things in my life as long as there was a salt shaker somewhere on the table. I was in Perth, Australia, Western Australia, preaching for a missionary there, and, and we were having a good week, and he said, uh, Brother Gatch, there's a, a family that would like to have you over for a meal. I said, well, that'd be okay. He said, well, I, I got to warn you. He said, uh, these folks are aboriginals, and he said, the aboriginal people here in Australia, they have some privileges that the rest of us don't have, and he said, one of the privileges that they have as natives to our, our country is that they're allowed to shoot the kangaroos and eat them. Well, if you ever visit Perth, Australia, you'll see kangaroos everywhere. I mean, they are just as common as deer are to Custer, South Dakota. I mean, they are everywhere. You've got to watch when you're driving, not to hit one as they hop across the road. Uh, they're everywhere in the parks and, and throughout the city. They're, they're very common. And I had seen them uh, over and over again, but I wasn't planning on eating any of them. I remember walking into this house, and the lady had a table there in the front room with places all around, and right in the middle of that table was a roasting pan, and inside was a kangaroo. I began to look for the salt shaker. <laughs> I can eat a lot of things as long as there's some salt to help season or make that food taste a little bit better. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Does our life make the truth of God's word taste better to a world that's losing its appetite for God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world is turning away from God. They're turning away from church. They're turning away from the Bible, and they're becoming more and more atheistic and agnostic and, and humanistic in their ways. And so the world today looks at God and religion as, ah, I don't need that. I've had an experience with that. It wasn't a good experience. They've got some, some bad taste in their mouth when it comes to spiritual things. And God says, hey, I need you to be salt. I need you to make me 
look good. I need you to make the truth taste good to a world that's losing its appetite for me. But when you think about salt, we also think about salt as a substance that creates thirst. If you eat certain foods, you can't eat a lot of potato chips without taking a drink of something. Because the salt content is so heavy in in certain meats like ham or bacon or something like that, you've got to have something to drink because salt creates thirst. Again, what a great application, right? As we go to our job tomorrow, will our life create some thirst in the life of someone else that needs God? Will we create thirst as we walk into a store or as we interact with people in our daily routines? Do we create thirst for God? When I was a boy growing up on the farm, my dad would buy these salt blocks. They're about a foot square and just solid salt. And we'd haul those things home from the mill and we'd uh, put one out in the pasture. And those cows, they'd come by and they'd lick on that thing. Those big old tongues, they'd lick on that. And uh, within a couple weeks, it was licked down to nothing. My dad put another one out there. And I remember as a little boy asking my dad, I said, Dad, why do, we, why do we do that? He said, well, we want the cows to be healthy. And because if they're healthy, they give more milk. If they give more milk, we make more money. <laughs> and so he said, in the summertime, they get dehydrated just like you and I do. And so we want them to drink a lot of water to stay healthy. So to do that, we put the salt out there. They like the taste of that. It tastes really good to them, but it makes them thirsty. And so they go drink more water. Does our life make someone thirsty for the things of God, which they so desperately need? When you think about salt, salt also is an irritant to a wound. You ever gotten salt into a cut? You ever maybe had a little cut on your hand? You got some of your own perspiration even into that cut? Oh, it stings. It kind of it hurts a little bit. Salt is an irritant. In fact, sometimes we say uh, in a negative way, I'm going to rub a little salt in their wounds. You ever say that? You know, you're trying to get back at somebody. They did you wrong, and so oh, I'm going to rub a little salt in their wound. What we mean is we're going to make it hurt a little bit for them. You know, salt as an irritant Think about this in our Christian life. This world acts according to the flesh. It acts according to their sinful nature. And as we interact with them, our life, a life of of godliness and holiness, ought to create a a little irritation to those that are living contrary to God. When when someone when someone uses an off-color word or tells a, a dirty story or something, the world ought to know that that, that doesn't sit well with us. That we're just not going to yuck it up with them and, and have a good time over that silliness. Now, I don't, I don't think we ought to be crude, and I don't think we ought to be rude to people, but people ought to know that, hey, that, that was offensive to the Lord. That was offensive to me. And, and our life ought to be a little bit of an irritant to those that are living contrary to God. But the primary use of salt when Jesus spoke these words was salt was a preservative. In Bible days, they did not have refrigeration as we would know it today. And so to preserve particularly their meat, they would saturate it in these salt vats. They would place the meat in there to saturate the meat with salt in order to preserve that meat. Well, again, does our life preserve the word of God? 
What a joy to hear these children singing these songs and saying these, these uh, Bible, uh, uh, books of the Bible in order and things like that. They're putting it into their life. They're putting that truth into their life. They're preserving it into their hearts so they can share it with the next generation and so on. And we need to be constantly hiding God's word in our heart. We constantly need to be putting truth away and storing it away in our heart so that we can pass it on. So salt has lots of applications here. When Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, now we have a little bit of a context. Now, what is salt? Well, if you remember way back to chemistry class, I don't know if you took a chemistry class. I did in high school. I don't remember a lot about it. I do remember the girl that sat next to me. But anyway, um, the teacher, Mr. James, he had placed a, a chart on the front wall of that classroom. In fact, it covered the entire wall. And the chart was all of these formulas that we had to memorize. Uh, For example, water was on there, H2O, right? Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, that makes up water. We had to memorize all of those formulas. Well, salt is simply sodium chloride. Sodium chloride. One part sodium, one part chloride, salt. Now, chemistry tells us that salt, no matter what you do to it, never changes in its composition. For example, if you freeze salt, you can investigate it in that frozen state, and it's still simply sodium chloride. Nothing changes about the makeup or the composition of salt in a frozen state. You can boil salt. You can liquefy salt. But if you study it under that condition, it is still simply sodium chloride. You can crush salt, but even in those little pieces, it is still simply sodium chloride. By the way, there's a great truth there. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to his disciples here. You're the salt of the earth. No matter what happens in your life, you're still saved. Isn't that a blessing? Because sometimes the devil kind of freezes us out of some relationships as a Christian. People start, hey, I don't, I don't think I want to hang around you anymore. You know, I, you don't, you're not a part of our family anymore, or you're going to follow that religious stuff. And, and the devil freezes us out of some opportunities even and some, and some relationships. But you know what? Thank the Lord we're still saved. If my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord took me up, the psalmist said. Sometimes the devil turns the heat up in our life, doesn't he? Sometimes, boy, the pressure of life, the stress of life, and there just seems to be all this stuff going on, and we're, we're, we're kind of getting rattled. But you know what? We're still saved. We, st- we still have a, a Savior. Sometimes the devil tries to crush us. Well, I mean, he beats on us. He just comes at us and, and brings all these trials and all these difficulties in our life, and, and we're like, I don't know what to do. But one thing you do know, even in that situation, you're still saved. So we're the salt of the earth. We're sodium chloride. But now he goes on to say, if the salt have lost its savor, well, if salt never changes in its composition, how does salt lose its savor? Have you ever tasted salt that wasn't salty? Have you ever, you ever taken a salt shaker to put some on your food and it, it, it just kind of rattled around in there? Just, just, it wouldn't even come out the holes and you, you kind of twisted the cover off and it was all crusty and everything and you, wow, there's no taste. Well, what happened? 
the salt had lost its savor. Well, how does that happen? If you can freeze it and boil it and, and, and crush it and do all these things to it and it doesn't change in its composition, then how does salt lose its savor? Well, back to chemistry class. Chemistry tells us that salt loses its savor through contamination. When another element besides sodium chloride gets into the salt mixture, it loses its savor. Now, we could end the lesson there and have an invitation for the next 30 minutes, couldn't we? Because we're salt. And we're supposed to have this great impact on our culture as a Christian. But we don't seem to be making a great impact. Why? Well, Jesus said the salt has lost its savor. And the only way for that to happen is through contamination. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through all the contaminants that possibly could get into our salt, but let's look at a couple. I think the first one's really obvious, the contaminant of sin. When sin gets into our life, obviously, we are going to be restricted in some way of being an a testimony for Jesus Christ. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So from that verse, we would understand that when we pray, one of the things we better do early in our prayers is get our, get our sins confessed. We better get our hearts clean. Because if there's iniquity that we're holding on to, that we're, we're regarding, we're, we know it's there, but we're going to keep it, God says, I, I'm not going to hear you. Now, I got to thinking about that verse one day. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If the Lord's not listening to me, I'm not sure my neighbors are. Right? I mean, if there's something blocking my relationship from the Lord and he's turning a deaf ear, now, I'm not sure when I speak to my neighbor about coming to church or I speak to somebody about, you know, their need of Christ, I'm not sure they're going to have a heart that's open to me. Sin is that contaminant that can cause our salt to lose its savor. Now remember, because we live in a world where nothing's wrong anymore. Nothing's called sin anymore. I mean, you know, it's legal to do certain things, but that doesn't make them not sinful. I mean, you know, you can smoke pot in a lot of states. That's legal, but that doesn't mean it's right. You can drink alcohol, and, 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 you know, it's legal at a certain age, but that doesn't mean it's, it's not sinful, right? So there's a lot of things in this world that the world doesn't recognize as sin. We've got to be careful because the world's attitude is, well, if I don't get caught, it's not wrong. You know, you, you can walk into a store in California and steal up to $1,000 worth of merchandise, and no one can arrest you. That's the law. And it happens every day. We go to Walmart, we see people just walking out with $999.99 worth of stuff. And not one employee, not one policeman, not one security guard can do one thing about it. Now, is that right? Because the law allows it? Well, if I own Walmart, I don't think so, <laughs> right? So we got to be really careful here because the world today is kind of dumbing down this idea of right and wrong. But the Bible says in 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. 
Well, who's righteous? God's righteous. So anything ungodlike is sin. Anything that's not in God's life, in God's heart, in God's mind, is sin. So we got to be really examining our life daily with respect to, is there sin in my life? Because sin is what separates us from God's power in our life and God's uh, ability to use us in our life. That's why Job said, if iniquity be found in thine hand, put it far from thee. In other words, keep short accounts about sin. Don't let sin build up in your life because your salt becomes unsalty as a result of the contaminant of sin. The second one we want to look at today is maybe a, a little bit more under the radar. The contaminant of self. Our biggest enemy is ourself. I was in a uh, small town a few years ago, and, and there was a local radio station, a small radio station that covered kind of the area there, and, and it was kind of a, you know, just a down-home uh, news and weather and, and uh, that, those kinds of things, and a lot of, lot of uh, just local interest kind of things, and they, they heard about the revival at the Baptist church, and so they called the church and said, hey, I understand you have a guest there from out of town preaching, and uh, we'd like to interview him on the radio and let folks know what's going on, and, and uh, so, of course, we gladly agreed to that. Went down there and met the producer of this particular program, and he was a really nice man, and he said, uh, he said, Mr. Getch, here in our community, we find that when we have guests come into town and people uh, have some interest, that if we do a little interview on the radio with them and just ask them some questions and, and get to know them a little bit, it really is pretty effective. People like it. They listen to it. And I said, well, I'd be fine as long as you ask the right questions. <laughs> and uh, uh, he laughed, and he said, well, I'll try to be kind. And I and, uh, appreciated that. I wasn't sure if he was a Christian or not or anything like that, and so I wasn't sure what the questions might be. Well, we got on the program. It was a half-hour program, and, and boy, he asked some really good questions. He really did, and gave me kind of a, an open door to share my testimony about what God had done in my life and, and uh, what I was doing in town and what the revival was all about. And I had several opportunities to just share the gospel on that little radio program. Well, we got down to the end, and uh, he said, uh, now, Mr. Getch, I've got one more question, and I, I apologize. We only have about 30 seconds for your answer I apologize for that, but I have one more question. He said, what is the biggest hindrance to what you do in your life? And I said, uh, sir, I, I won't need all 30 seconds to answer that. I can answer that in one word, myself. The greatest hindrance we have is ourself. D.L. Moody said, the man I fear the most is the one who walks underneath this hat. When Abraham Lincoln was running for president, they asked him one day on the campaign trail, they said, Mr. Lincoln, do you fear any of your opponents? He said, yes. One. They were surprised. He was doing well in the campaign. They said, who do you fear? He said, a man named Lincoln. He said, if I'm defeated, I'll be defeated by Lincoln. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? And it's what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now that word perilous, it's interesting, it's a word that means unraveled. <laughs> Does that describe today or not? Well, I tell you, doesn't this world seem like it's unraveling? I mean, the home is unraveling. 
The government is unraveling. The economy is unraveling. Morals are unraveling. I mean, it's just, there's no end. Anywhere you look, it just seems like it's coming apart. And so we look at our world today and we say, man, these must be the last days. This, this must be it. I mean, look at the morals of our nation, the ethics. I mean, look at our politicians. Look at all this stuff. This has got to be the last days God's talking about here. Verse 2, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Oh. When God points to the sign of the last days, he doesn't say, look at the same-sex marriage, look at the crime on the streets, look at the, look at the corruption in politics, look at the economy, and the infl- inflation and the recession. No, no, he says, the sign of the last times is when men love the creature rather than the creator. And I think we're there. I think we're there. It's amazing how self-centered we are. People can't take a picture of a flower without being in the picture. Right? They see a a flower. Oh, look at this flower. Take a picture. (laughs) Selfies, right? Now we have have in the workforce self-care days. Right? You gotta, you gotta, if you're an employer, you gotta give so many people so many self-care days. I don't even, I don't even know what that means. I was raised on a dairy farm. There weren't too many self-care days. I, man, I wish I was a kid these days. Dad, I can't do the milk in this morning. I gotta have a self-care day. <laughs> My dad's gonna say there are 50 cows that need a self-care day. <laughs> get out there and milk them. Right? You know, it's amazing. And I, I get it. Mental health, all these things. I, I'm not making fun of that. It's a serious problem with what we're dealing with internally in our lives without God. But the point is that we've got all this emphasis on ourselves. And that self contaminates our salt. The Bible talks about, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, when the church at Rome read that letter and got to chapter 12, they must have thought, what's Paul talking about? A living sacrifice. That would have made no sense. Because up until that time, every sacrifice that they would have read about in the Old Testament required death. The, the Passover lamb. What did they do? They got a, a lamb without blemish, without spot. What did they do? They killed it. They put it on the altar as a sacrifice. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament, whether it was a heifer, a bullock, a goat, a, a ram, a, 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 a corn, wheat, whatever it was, they, they cut it down. They, they killed it. They put it on the altar, and then they offered it up unto the Lord. So every sacrifice they were familiar with required death. But now Paul's saying, I want you to be a living sacrifice. And they must have wondered, what does that mean? And of course, Paul goes on in, in that ch- chapter to explain what that is. And that's exactly what God desires from us. God doesn't desire us to go out here and commit suicide today to show him how much we love him. Right? He's not asking us to, to kill ourselves to prove that we love God. No, he's saying, I want you to live your life for me. 
I want to live in sacrifice. I want you to, to, to die to yourself and die to the things of this world and die to your old flesh and live to me. Isn't that what Paul is trying to say in Galatians 2.20? I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So uh, God wants a living sacrifice. He wants us to put our life on the altar and give our life to him. Now the problem with a living sacrifice is it's always trying to crawl off the altar. See, when they killed that little lamb and they placed it on that altar and they lit the fire, the lamb didn't go, ha, 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 you know. No, it was dead. It was dead. But when you and I come to church and pastor gets up and preaches and God says, I want you to deal with that. I want you to die to that. I want that out of your life. And we say, Lord, you're right. That's not right. That's not, that's not pleasing to you. I'm going to give that to you. And we put it on the altar. The problem is the next day, we want to get off the altar. We might decide today, I'm going to read my Bible every day. But tomorrow, we've got to wake up and read it. And sometimes we wake up, we don't want to read it. We don't have time to read it. We don't feel like reading it, Right? And so the problem is this living sacrifice, it still has that old nature that wants to rebel against what God is doing. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. Every day we have to have a funeral for self. Every day we've got to die to self. We've got to mortify our members, as Paul put it in Colossians 3, 5. We've got to put them to death. We've got to die to self Self is one of those contaminants that will cause our salt to be unsalty. So we've got sin, we've got self. The third one maybe is a little more subtle. The contaminant of scars. The Christian life is described in God's word as a battle or a warfare, a fight. Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We read in Ephesians 6, we're to put on the whole armor of God. Well, you don't have to put on armor if you're not going to battle. Uh, I haven't worn a pair of shoulder pads in a long time. I haven't put on a football helmet in a number of years. Now, for 10 years of my life, I mean, every, every fall season, I wore all that stuff. But I, I don't wear it anymore. Why? Because I don't play football. Now, if I flip on the TV this afternoon, I'm going to see a lot of people wearing football pads. Why? Because they're playing the game today, right? So if you're in the game, if you're fighting a battle, you've got to have some armor. So the Bible describes the Christian life as this battle, not against flesh and blood, but against, uh, against principalities and powers and, 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 and all these kinds of spirit world attacks that come upon us from Satan and all of his forces. In any battle, there's going to be some injury. I don't think the three games being played today in the NFL will be played without an injury. Some could be serious. Some could be minor, and someone could get back in the game within a few minutes. But there will be some injuries. 
In the Christian life, you will get hurt. People say things that hurt. People do things that hurt. People will let you down sometimes. People will uh, forget. There will be some injuries. Now, what you do with those injuries is very important. Because if you're not careful, when an injury comes, if you don't deal with it properly, it can lead to a scar. A scar of bitterness. A scar of anger. A scar of of fatalism, just giving up. You see, what you do with the injury is going to be really important. When that player goes down this afternoon, they're, they're going to be rushing to him. They're going to be taking him to that blue tent. They're going to be checking that out. And they're not going to let him go back into that game without dealing with that injury. And we as Christians, sometimes we get hurt in the battle. We get injured in the battle because it is a battle. And yet, if we don't deal with that properly, it can turn to a scar that causes our salt to lose its savor. I'm glad the Bible gives us some illustrations of some people who dealt with their scar or dealt with their injuries properly so that it didn't turn into a scar. I think of Joseph. Joseph was a young man who was favored by his father, probably because he was the firstborn of his beloved wife, and he made him a coat of many colors. You know the story. His brothers, however, hated him because of this. They, they were very jealous and envious, and they had hatred toward him so much so that they tried to kill him. They would have killed him had Reuben not intervened. Because of that intervention, they sold him as a slave. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. It's a picture of sin. There were no believers in Egypt. And here's this this Joseph. He's down here all by himself without any support system, without anybody to encourage him, and all this heathen culture around him. And and, and yet, we don't see that Joseph misses a beat there. He's a slave. He's he's a nothing. And, And he's in Potiphar's house, but he's serving faithfully as under the Lord. He's trying to please God, and God prospers him and blesses him. And, and Joseph begins to go up the ladder of success and, 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 and prominence. And then, of course, Genesis 39, where Potiphar's wife tries to sexually entice Joseph. And yet Joseph takes a stand. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And, and he gets out of there. He, he refuses the, the temptation. But she lies about it, tells her husband that he raped her. So now, as any good husband would do, he brings, brings charges, and Joseph ends up in prison. And not for a day, three years. Three years. He's innocent before God, and yet there he is in that prison. No friends, no lawyers, no phone calls, but Joseph goes to work, and he serves, and God prospers, and people forget about him. Oh, he asked the, the ones there, hey, if you get out, tell, tell them about me. Tell them I'm being faithful, and everybody forgot about him, but he remained faithful, and God, in his sovereign plan, had a plan to bring Joseph out and make him a deliverer to the nation of Israel, a beautiful picture um, there, are, there are over 300 types in Joseph's life of the Lord Jesus Christ that was to come later. Very similar situations. 
So a beautiful picture because Joseph handled that injury well. I think of Daniel. Daniel is, is, is ripped away from his family during the Babylonian captivity. Uh, his family, we don't know. His parents probably killed. His siblings, if he had them, taken captive or, or killed. Uh, Joe, uh, Daniel is taken into Babylon. They, they changed everything about Daniel. Or they tried. They, they changed his name. They, they tried to change his diet. Daniel is never going to get married. He's never going to have children. They've taken that away. I mean, the Bible doesn't describe it in detail, but Daniel is under the prince of the eunuchs. He's been physically mutilated. Now, if I'm 17 years old and that's happening to me, I'm going, oh, thanks, God. I'm out of here. I mean, I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. What is going on? Why am I being treated like this? I didn't start this war. I didn't do anything wrong. But not Daniel. Daniel's purpose in his heart is not defile himself. And again, God brings Daniel out of all of that and makes him a deliverer to the nation. I I think of Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are preaching in Philippi. They're just doing what God called them to do, and they get arrested, and they're thrown in prison. And the the jailer is charged to keep them safely, so he puts them into the inner prison. I assume that's like a dark cell. They put their feet in stocks. They beat their backs bloody and left them, you know, to suffer. Now, again, if somebody walks in here today and arrests me and beats me up and puts me in prison, I'm going to be like, God, I was just trying to to do what you told me to do. What's going on? I'm, I'm, I'm asking some questions. But Paul and Silas at midnight are singing. They're praising God. And the Bible says all the prisoners heard them. This wasn't the McDonald's prayer. Lord bless the food. Amen. <laughs> you know, they were letting people know, hey, praise the Lord. Right? Well, you know the story. There was an earthquake. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakened out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he, he, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing all the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cries with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm. We are all here. Catch that. We're all here. I know this. If you open the prison doors in South Dakota this morning, they ain't all going to be there. We're doing it in California. They're not staying, okay? We've let them all out. They, they all, they're all out, okay? And, and they don't stay. If you open the door, they leave. Not that night. They all stayed. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think they all got saved. Because when the jailer realizes it, he says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? How did he even know about saved? How would he know about saved to ask that question? Somebody is saying, what are you doing here? We got saved. Well, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) I mean, if that's what happens when you get saved, I want that, right? I mean, we laugh. We say, nobody's ever asked me, what must I do to be saved? Well, maybe it's because our salt lost its savor. See, Paul and Silas didn't allow this trial in their life to cause them to get bitter. Well, I'm not going back to church now. No. 
They used the trial as a launching point for something greater for God. And God used that in a wonderful way because their salt didn't lose its savor. And, of course, what better illustration than Jesus himself? Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, the Bible says if the salt has lost its savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trundered to the foot of men. Think about the gravity of that. Good for nothing. If I said, this, this boy right here, what's your name, son? What is it? Tanner. Tanner, you're good for nothing. <laughs> now, if I meant that, this guy's getting out of his chair in a minute. He's, those are fighting words, right? I mean, if I seriously said to Tanner, that boy's good for nothing. He's worthless. Why do you even let him come to church? That kid's worthless. That's pretty low. That's about as derogatory as I could be, right? Those are fighting words for mom and dad. This isn't me saying it. This is God saying to you and me, if your salt has lost its savor, you're good for nothing. You say, well, yeah, but God, I could maybe still preach in a little church? No. You're good for nothing. Well, I could, I could maybe clean the church? No, you're good for nothing. That's serious. You know what they did with salt in Bible days when it lost its savor? They didn't put it on the fields. Because it would kill everything out there. It was still sodium chloride. By the way, if our salt has lost its savor, please don't go in the fields. The fields are white under harvest. But there's a lot of unsavory Christians that are killing everything out there. They took the salt that lost its savor and they put it in the street to be trodden underfoot of men. And I don't know this as a fact, but I, I like to connect the dots in the Bible because the Bible's a theological book that you have to kind of connect. But when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 about running the race and running all that you can receive a prize and so on, the last verse there says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And I think maybe Paul was thinking about that salt. Paul realized he couldn't lose his salvation no matter what happened in his life. He was still salt. But he didn't want to get to the place where that salt was good for nothing. Where God would have to put it on a shelf and say, I can't use you anymore. You've lost your savor. And that ought, to, that ought to concern us. And we would take a good look maybe this week in our lives of, of maybe sin that, that's there that we need to deal with. Maybe self has gotten way too prominent in our life. And our decisions are made on selfish reasons rather than savior reasons. And then we need to think about those scars. Because I know and you know that all of us, if we're not careful, can start getting bitter. We can get angry. We, we can get frustrated, even with God, much less with people. And those scars take the salt's savor out of our life. 
This world so desperately needs salt and light. And we get to be it. But we need a light, not under a bushel, but on a hill, on a candlestick, so that all men can see. And we need a salt that has a savor, that makes God taste good again, that, that, that gets some thirst going in people's lives. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, but you can put salt in his oats and make him thirsty. <laughs> and we need a salt that kind of flies in the face of this wicked culture out there and, and convicts them. And then we need a salt that preserves the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the simplicity of your word. And, and, and yet, Lord, how that simplicity speaks to the, to the heart. And Lord, uh, we pray that you'd allow each of us to take a good look at our salt. I pray if there's someone here that is not saved, that, Lord, they'd take care of that first. And then, Lord, as Christians... May we look at our lives and see if our salt is salty. For, Lord, there's a great work to do. And, uh, Lord, you've chosen to use us. And may we be usable instruments in your hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.